0: Okay, ready? Who can tell me what a nickname is? Do you know what a nickname is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something you call somebody that's not their real name. That's exactly right. Do any of you have a nickname? Do you have one? What's your nickname? What? Mama and Maddie. Maddie. And what's your real name? Madeline. Who else has a nickname? You have one. What's yours? What? Grace, and what's your nickname? Gracie, yeah. Who else has a nickname? Do you have one? What's your nickname? EJ, and what's your real name? Evan, mm mm-hmm. Did you know I have a nickname too? Everybody calls me Becky, but that's not my name. My name's Rebecca, but if you call me Rebecca, I might think I'm in trouble, so don't do that. I just like Becky, that's all. Did you know... Jesus has some nicknames. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Christ is one. Do you know any other nicknames for Jesus? Son of God, that's a good nickname. How about, I got some written down here, Prince of Peace. Have you heard that one? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Savior, yep, that's another nickname. These are names that we call Jesus that aren't Jesus, but we still know we're talking about Jesus, right? Right, let's see if have some other ones. Um, everlasting father, wonderful counselor. And the one we're going to talk about today is Emmanuel. Have you heard that nickname before, Emmanuel? Do you know what that means? Hmm, I've got a verse from the Bible here. And this is when, uh, in the Christmas story, when the angel's talking to Joseph about Mary's going to have the baby. And the angel says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to his son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isn't that cool? God with us. So, um, that's a really special name because it's not just a nickname. It really means something. It means that God is with us on earth. So, when God sent Jesus, he's God. Jesus is God, but he's on the earth with us. And that is so cool. And God sent him so that we can have a relationship with him and so that he can save us from our sins. So, we're going to pray about that. And then I have a little activity that you can take back to your seat with you. Okay? Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for Jesus, and I thank you that we can call him by any name that means something special to us, especially Emmanuel. We are so glad that you sent him to earth to be with us and that he will save us from our sins. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
1: Um, I love the talk about uh, nicknames. Did you all have nicknames when you were growing up? I tried one. I tried to get Hank started. I wanted to be Hank Thompson because I had a vision I was going to be Hank Thompson. I was going to have a band called The Two-Tones. And while I played with bands that could qualify for that name, I never actually had a band that was officially called the Two-Tones. But, and Hank never really, never really stuck. Um, I had to fight people who called me Timmy. I hate that. So if you want to make me mad, call me Timmy. Um, don't do it. Please don't do it. We're going to talk about a guy, John asked me to sort of get the ball rolling today on the topic. He's going to talk about Jesus, and I get to talk about the bad guy in this story, um, Herod. So we're starting a series called Rethinking Christmas, and hopefully through the next couple of weeks you'll get a chance to reimagine or rethink some of the presuppositions you had about the Christmas story. Um, every great story has a villain. When I think about Disney, some of the great Disney villains, call them out. Mufasa, Scar, oh, Scar- Mufasa wasn't the villain, Scar was the villain, Maleficent, the Grinch, not Disney, but I'll take it, <laughs> Ursula, Cruella de Vil, that was the scariest one, all those poor puppies, we're going to, <laughs> the world is not, Disney doesn't have, a, uh, have a, uh, a monopoly on villains, the world has plenty of villains, um, Edie Amin, anyone remember Edie? uh, Hitler, Uh, Tilla the Hun, no one here remembers him, but we've heard of him certainly. Stalin, yes, is that ringing a bell? How about Pietro Caruso? Anyone know Pietro Caruso? What's that? He was not a famous opera singer, (laughs) he was the police chief of Rome and a loyal bloodhound of Mussolini, another uh, criminal. Together with Herbert Kapler, the Gestapo commander of Rome, he participated in many horrors and gleefully pursued Mussolini's enemies. His greatest atrocity was the mass execution of Fosse Andientin in 1944. In just one day, he gathered 300, over 300 people in front of Nazi rifles and had them executed. Caruso was especially famous for his sadism. Among Nazis, he was famous for his sadism which was really, in all, a notable achievement that he was famous for that, even among some of the most bloodthirsty and um, sadistic people of their time. We're going to talk about Herod. And Herod, I bring up Herod in connection with Caruso, because like Caruso, Herod was really a small-time guy. He nicknamed himself Herod the Great. Uh, maybe you hear, I've heard of him that way, but really he was a small-time um, ruler of a small area. He got his authority to rule from Rome, and as long as he kept Rome happy, they would leave him alone, and he could be just as cruel and um, murderous as he wanted to be as long as peace remained there in that uh, small uh, Judean principality of Rome. Um, he got his position by schmoozing and bribing the right people, and he would do anything to keep his position. Just to give you a little taste of his character, um, he banished his first wife, wife uh, Doris, and his son so he could marry um, the niece of a powerful Roman official a whom he later had killed. He subsequently killed his other wife, his two brothers-in-law, a mother-in-law, and three of his sons because they, he th- suspected them of trying to take away his throne. Now, if you've not heard of Herod the Great in that context, perhaps you remember him from the story in Matthew chapter 2. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll just read through sort of a, an account of Herod um, that's perhaps the most famous to us today. So when two or three of you are there, say there, and I'll, and I'll start reading. Okay, there's one, two, three. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 19. We'll read and skim a little bit here, so just follow along as best you can. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come here to worship him. Now, King Herod hears this, and the scriptures say, he was disturbed, because again, what does he do to people who try to take his throne away from them from him? He kills them. anyone suspected of participating, collaborating, he has them killed. So all Jerusalem, thinking that Herod is going to be uh, suspecting them of hiding this new king, all of Jerusalem was disturbed as well, to put it mildly. So Herod calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. A far, far way from us. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this is the the Disney moment. every, Every story has them. That moment where the evil guy sort of tries to put one over on the good guys. So Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, now picture the orchestra, the music is getting ominous and spooky. He says, but he's got this wicked grin on his face. Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. This is something Scar would do. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him, and they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, thankfully, they returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now here is where the full character of Herod comes into play. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the times he had learned from the Magi. Then, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Herod was truly a bad guy. Now, the point we want to make when we're revisiting Christmas and rethinking about Christmas is to imagine something pretty far fetched, perhaps. Imagine this. We are Herod. And you say, hold on just a second. I may have thought about killing my brother-in-law, but I I never did it. I'm not Herod. Well, there's three aspects of Herod's personality and character that I think we should examine. First, Herod was hard-headed. Not just your Uncle Bill, who sat over by the fireplace this Thanksgiving, drinking his coffee and eating his pumpkin pie and mumbling about the state of the world and Obamacare. There are other ways to be (laughs) hard-headed. We can all be hard-headed. New ideas, new concepts, mm, no, I don't think so. All I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten, which was a great book, by the way. But the point the book made was that you keep learning through life. New kings? No. What did the scriptures say? When Herod heard about this new thing, he was disturbed. So are we disturbed by new things? When was the last time you tried to understand something from someone else's point of view? When was the last time you tried to understand something so well that you could articulate it and argue their point for them? When was the last time, and I confess, it's been a while since I've done this, when was the last time you actually opened up that Facebook post that that friend sent you and actually read it because you seriously, you know exactly what it's going to say because they always send the same kind of news articles to you. Most of us know what we think, and we aren't that interested in changing our mind. Anyone feel like that is true of them? Ron Beggerly feels that way about him. We're all that way, aren't we? We know what we think. We learned it in a kindergarten, and no one's going to change our mind at this point in time. The second thing, not only was he hard-headed, but he was hard-hearted. That's an understatement. How many infant boys were there in Bethlehem that could have potentially posted, posed a threat to uh, Herod's throne? I have no idea. Maybe five, maybe 10, maybe twenty, fifty. But Herod's ruthlessness flowed out of a heart that had been hardened to kindness Mercy and compassion. How about you? Is your heart hardened to mercy, kindness, and compassion? When was the last time you actually demonstrated tangibly a kindness towards someone? Is there an aging relative in the nursing home or a sick friend in the hospital? Someone who's sort of homebound that would love a visit, just an encouraging, kind word or a plate of homemade brownies? When was the last time you took in someone, maybe physically, spiritually, emotionally, who needed a temporary refuge from the harsh world? You know, our hearts need to be continually tenderized, or they can become like Herod's. And third, Herod was self-centered. Ouch. It is said that as Herod lay dying, knowing that his death would not be mourned, really, by anyone, he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho, and he gave an order that at the exact time of his death, these men should be killed too, so that there would be mourning at his passing. Now that's pretty self-centered, wouldn't you say? I've got a confession, I'm pretty self-centered. Every year I buy myself a Christmas gift. I spend more time picking out my own gift than I spend picking out anyone else's gift. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know you're disappointed in me. But I told you, I'm pretty self-centered. You see, self-centered is not thinking of yourself more highly than others. That's pride. When you think you're better than others, that's pride. Self-centered is just thinking about yourself more than you think about others. Ask yourself this question. Do I miss out on bits of conversation because I'm already thinking of how I'm going to respond or answer? Do I hate parties because I think everyone there is talking and thinking and judging me? Do I post more than five selfies to Facebook every week? Ron, I'm talking to you. If so, you might be self centered. Now, I'll give you a hint. You are. We're all self centered. We all think of ourselves probably more than we should and not nearly enough about others. That's a Herod mindset. Herod thought more about how a new king would change his world than he thought about how that same king would change our world. We're no different in many ways than King Herod. We're self centered, we're hard hearted, and hard headed. And while our cruelty may not take the same expression, it flows from the same place. The scriptures say it this way, all have sinned. Thankfully, the same king that terrified and disturbed King Herod is our, our friend and our helper, as the kids said, our savior, our prince of peace, our heavenly advocate. Romans 8.34 says this, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Ezekiel 11:19 19 makes this promise to all of us. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh.
2: I want to, before we get rolling here, I just want to give a, a couple of shout-outs uh, Thanks. First of all, uh, I want to thank everybody who brought food in, the choir and the food team. Let's give the food team and the choir a huge hand for bringing all that in. Um, don't ever want to take that for granted. It's just an amazing thing. We started a brand new ministry today, and I don't know if you saw the folks out there with the neon colors, but it's a parking team. And so I'm thrilled to have these guys. We we'll give them a huge hand too because what they're going to be doing. Now, here's the thing that I realize. Uh, a lot of people have this question about parking everything. Uh, as we get into the winter season, we're going to unfold what the winter plan is in case snow rolls in here and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but we have a parking plan, and the first step was to have folks in there from this point forward, especially during the winter, to just help you get in and, and make everything as comfortable as can possibly. So I appreciate those folks. And then in all kidding aside, uh, I love Tim leading worship, but I' can tell you, these last few years, I love Tim's teaching. And I love his preaching. And honestly, it's just great to have Tim be part of this. I mean that. Uh, we're going to continue with this kind of the good cop, bad cop uh, sermon. And Tim took Herod. And uh, at the very heart of what Tim said about being hard-headed, hard-hearted, he was self-centered. Uh, there's another key element of Herod that we really want to get deeper into. Because I think it can not only ruin Christmas, it can ruin your life. And uh, before we dive into that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's just, it's just amazing to be here this morning and to look around and the voices that are lifted up as we approach this holiday season, uh, the beauty of he- hearing children's voices, because that means the church is alive. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we can focus on him. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Years ago, I did a sermon series in Illinois on the seven deadly sins, and as a, as a kid, whenever I'd, ever I'd hear that, I assumed the seven deadly sins were in the Bible. And they're really not a list. It's, it's from the Catholic Church. Now, you'll find each one of these sins. But I love what the Catholics did in, as far as when they developed in 400 A.D., uh, the desert monks, they call them, and Ponticus is credited with actually developing what he called the seven deadly sins. And here's what he said. It is a mortal or deadly sin believed to destroy the life of grace and charity, and I love this, within a person. In other words, there's these seven sins that in an individual's life that if they're not dealt with, it can ruin your life, and it's from the inside out. And the deadly sin that I think is at the very heart of the deadly sins is pride. If there was one thing about Herod That we can take away is when pride is left unchecked. It will destroy your life, but it'll destroy all the lives around you. There will be so much spiritual damage because of pride and collateral damage because of not just being self centered, but to be prideful. Now, it's the Christmas time of year, and especially my girls. They start the Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving. They play it straight through. They watch a Christmas movie every day. Those Hallmark movies that my son and I are like, you should pay us to watch this. This is I can tell you how he's going to die and he's, she's going to get with him. This is ridiculous. And then we end up watching it, okay? And then there's these, I think, classic Christmas characters. And uh, we're going to pull up a picture of one right here. You've seen this guy. It's the Grinch, and you've probably watched the, the classic little short film, and, uh, and I love the classic. And there's a song, Mr. Grinch, and I'm sure you've heard that, and these are a few of the lines from the song I love. You're a rotter, Mr. Grinch. You're the king of sinful sots. Your heart's dead, tomato, squashed with moldy purple spots. They just don't write them like that anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> This ain't Simon and Garfunkel, if you know any. Okay. Mr. Grinch, this is my favorite part. The best three words that describe you as follows, I quote, stink, stank, stunk. Did you think you were going to hear that at church today? I think not, okay? But in all seriousness, we have evidence all the time of what pride can do to you. Two weeks ago, many are saying this is the greatest sports upset of 2015, and you may be surprised, but her name was Ronda Rousey. Now, those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I've watched this video more than once because it was epic. Uh, She was mouthing off quite a bit about I'm the greatest that's ever fought. I'm the baddest woman in the world. Uh, She refused to shake the opponent's hand. And by the way, the gal that kicked the snot out of her was a preacher's daughter, and I love that. That's what I'm talking about, all right? Okay? So Holly Holmes just knocks her out. But it is an example of pride. I mean, the moment pride gets a hold of you, and I mean gets a hold of you, and you let that play out, eventually the Scripture tells you and tells all of us, it will ruin your life. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Think about that. That if pride is left unchecked, scripturally it says, it will destroy your life. And I love what Romans 12, uh, 16 says in the message. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. That's pride. Pride is a person who always wants to be the center of attention. Pride is a person, that, and I love what Tim said, it isn't just being self-centered, it's that the whole world revolves around you. How many parents of teenagers do we have? Good. We, now we know who to pray for. Okay. Now, how many of you have had this conversation with one of your teenagers? Uh, I, I, all my kids are through those years. Praise the Lord. And, but I, Especially my son. This is a conversation we had all the time. I don't know if you realize this, but the world does not revolve around you. Am I the only parent that's ever said that? Good. Grandparents say it? Okay. That's pride. The world revolves around you. And he says, listen, if you want life to fall apart, then let pride take over your life. But there's good news. There's a solution. And the solution Becky mentioned this morning comes from Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will be with the child, and he will give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel. And let's read this together from Matthew one23 Let's read it together. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let that sink in. God with us. Now think about that. That from the very beginning... We see at the fall of man that God had a plan and ultimately that his son would come to us. What does that mean? First of all, it means Jesus came into this world like us, born of a woman, a baby in a manger. But think about that. He he was not born in a palace. He was born basically in a stable. But he came into this world like us. Everybody in this room has something in common. You all have a birth story. And you loved it when your mom would tell you about your birth. My mom's story was so special to me because she said, finally, you nearly killed me, okay? (laughs) I was nine pounds, 14 ounces. I really did almost take her out. You know, I mean, it was a bad scene. But boy, my mom will go on and on about, oh, it was just so incredible, okay? We all have birth stories, So you look back and you think, Jesus came into this world the way that we came into this world. Jesus grew as a child like us. It tells us in Luke 2.40, and a child will grow and he will become strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Max Ciclato has a great book that is so fitting for this. It's God Came Near. I highly recommend it. You can go online and get that for next to nothing. But there's a section in there that I love and he said he's always wondered, from Mary's perspective, as Jesus was gro- growing up, what questions she had. And she has, he has 25. Now, I'm not going to read all 25. I'm just going to read 23. So here we go. Just a few. Here we go. What was it like watching him pray? Another question. When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Here's another question. Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face, as if he were listening to someone that you couldn't hear. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Did, he ever, did you ever scold him? I don't think so. <laughs> Who is his best friend? And this is my favorite question. Did you ever think that's God eating my soup? Seriously, in every day, just what we would go through in everyday life, can you imagine Mary standing back and thinking, this is the Son of God who's actually sitting before me, whose knees when he scraped and I, and I clean his bloody knees, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God eating my soup. He came to this world and he grew just like us. He cried just like us. Every child's favorite memory verse, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He cried just like us us matter of fact in Luke 22:44, he didn't just cry we know that when he was in the garden it was anguish in the garden that when he sweat there was actually mixed in with the sweat blood which meant literally that his heart was exploding from within him because of the anguish for us he cried just like us and then here's what our call is is our call because of all the things that Jesus did just like us is we are called to walk just like Jesus Grandparents, I guarantee you love to watch this. I know my mom talked about it, is don't you love to watch your grandkids walk like their parents? You ever stand back and and grandparents, you kind of walk and go, same strange little walk. You know, I I know where that came from, okay? There's something powerful about the way somebody walks. If you've lost somebody that you have loved this year, I guarantee one of the things you remember, you remember the way they walk. And Jesus calls out to us through his word. And he says, you know, I walked with you. And ultimately, I want you to walk like me. Listen to these powerful words from 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. And this we know, that we have come to know him. And if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever said he abides in him ought to, I love this, walk the same way in which he walked. You want to overcome pride? You walk the way Jesus walked. That is the solution for pride. And it's the solution for life. And as we go into the Christmas season, we don't want to admit this, but Tim is right, we can be prideful. We may disguise it in, I'm in the holiday spirit, but we can actually be prideful. And we need to step back and truly remember, we are called to walk like Jesus. So I want to issue a challenge for all of us going into Christmas season. There's a lot of things about Christmas that I don't like, (laughs) I'll just be honest with you, like uh, Black Friday, you couldn't pay me to get out there and wrestle people, you know, maybe pay somebody else. But so shopping, not high on my list. My, my wife will call me a Grinch sometimes because there's just certain things I, I don't like. But one of the things I do like when I get out is I love to people watch during Christmas. Do you got do you to people watch? And I always look at husbands because I love that glazed look in their eyes, <laughs> like when they're standing in the line like, somebody, Please strike me dead. I mean, they have that, uh, you know, that look, and, or even the way they take out their wallet. I hate Christmas. You know, you just see that, okay? I love to people watch. So here's a challenge. More than just people watching is I call this caring for people this Christmas. So here's how you do this. 1930, his name was Frank Laubach, and he developed what he called a prayer experiment. And he took several months to unfold this. He, he loved the readings of Sir, uh, I think it was Brother Lawrence. If you've never read Brother Lawrence, in, in the Presence of God, it's a little book, but it's an amazing little book that has so millions and millions of copies. And Brother Lawrence, his whole philosophy was, what if you spent every moment of your life, whatever you did, and think about God? And every action at work and everything that you do, just try to think as God throughout the day, all day long, every day. What would happen if you focused On God that way and brother Lawrence did it while he washed dishes he was a monk so he developed a prayer over dishes and did some amazing things so Frank Laubach said if I were to do that in my life it would mean things like when I pick up the newspaper I will actually pray for the people I'm reading about in the newspaper okay he said if i was having a meal i didn't just say a quick prayer at the beginning of the meal throughout the meal i tried to praise god for the things on my plate and pray for those who probably weren't going to have a meal that day at work i tried to find little parts throughout the day that i would pray a prayer of gratitude at work and even at home every little chore that i took place in i would try to pray for the things that i was doing but here's what i love the most i would try to view people differently and here's what he did I would shoot people with silent prayer. So in other words, as you're looking at people, that poor husband standing in line, pray for him. But pray for the little child running through the store that usually frustrates you. Pray for that kid. Pray for the person who cuts you off. Pray for the person who's on the wrong side of the one-way streets in Bloomington. Pray for all the IU students who are leaving for Christmas break. But you pray for them, you pray for them, you shoot them with prayer. Now, the one thing I advise you not to do, don't use your finger, don't don't do this. We are living in edgy times, I wouldn't do that. But you can prayer shoot people. And just as you pass by during this Christmas season, is you just shoot them with a prayer. And what's gonna happen, is God will start working on your heart. And he'll start working on my heart. Christmas will be different. Because now we're moving all the pride out and we're allowing Christ to come in. And the more times that we allow Christ to come in, eventually we're going to walk differently. And in time, people will say, something's different about you. And it happened from the inside out. Let me pray before we head out. God, I I cannot praise you enough for today. I cannot thank you as we look at new perspectives at Christmas and uh, thinking about Christmas differently, that as we go into this Christmas season, that we go out from this place and we actually care for people. We start by praying for people. Silently, all the folks that are passing by, Lord, help us to pray for them. Help us to love them. And ultimately, we want to walk the way that you walked. We love you. We praise you. And Lord, we desperately want to be more like you. And it's in Jesus' most precious holy name and God's people said